everyone, this is Jack, and this is another bonus episode that I'm throwing up here because, well, one, it's a real cool panel with Mike Selinger. I mean, he's been involved in everything for ages and is still producing so many awesome games. I mean, Mike has been involved with Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition and Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, as well as, oh, I don't know, Betrayal on House on the Hill. I mean, just like an unbelievable list of iconic games, and this is a presentation that he did at PlatypusCon in January of 2020 here in Juneau, Alaska about game design and development. And there are so many awesome topics that he covers here. And it's mainly directed at a more casual audience since we don't exactly have like a real in-depth game design community here in Alaska. We have some, but this is mainly meant for gamers rather than game designers. I did want to give you a heads up that the audio quality on people asking questions isn't as good because of how we mic'd the room. That's something that we're still figuring out at PlatypusCon and hope to have figured out by next convention, it still functions here and you can make out what people are saying or at least get enough context through what the answers are. And I have timestamps in the, the, the podcast description describing what people are asking and what the different subjects are for the different uh, sections here. But for the most part, it is just Mike going on this panel, this journey all about game design and development. The other reason why I'm putting this up is because, man, things are buck wild here in, well, I guess Earth. And I know a lot of you are experiencing a, a lot of challenges due to COVID-19, whether it's medical trauma or it's a financial impact on your family or it's the feeling of isolation that comes with the social distancing. I just wanted to, you know, add, add something out there and tell you that I'm thinking of all of you and I hope you're able to be with your loved ones and get the support that you need and that you are able to continue gaming with the people in your home or online. I know I've done some Skype gaming with my friends, and that's been really cool. And it's, uh, it's, really, it's really amazing to witness a time of immense crisis uh, for people all over the world and to see how gamers have overcome some of the challenges and barriers and, you know, stood up for one another in one, in one fashion or another. So just wanted to throw that out there, tell you I'm thinking of you. And here is a bonus episode. We'll be back with a regular episode next time. And then maybe I'll have some more bonus stuff on the off weeks. We shall see. Uh, got a lot of cool interviews upcoming here soon, including Isaac Childress, of Cephalofair Games. Yeah, Frosthaven's Kickstarter is right around the corner. So without further ado, here is Mike Selinker on game design and development. Hey everybody, I'm Mike Selinker. I'm uh, the chief creative officer and owner of Lone Shark Games, a company down in Seattle. We, uh, uh, I, I used to work for Wizards of the Coast uh, and that a little bit for TSR. Uh, I was uh, some of the things I've done in my life. I'm the was a creative director for Third Edition Dungeons and Dragons. I relaunched Axis and Allies uh, and the Avalon Hill line. I wrote a Risk game called Godstorm. Uh, I did Betrayal at House on the Hill. Um, once I founded 
Lone Shark. Um, some of our games are Lords of Vegas, Unspeakable Words, Pirates of the Spanish Main, um, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, Apocrypha, Ninth World, Thornwatch, things like that. So uh, we also have a big puzzle game division. We, we make uh, all sorts of puzzles for various environments. We've, uh, we've worked on pretty much every puzzle game that's out there. We've done things for detective and, and uh, you know, just lots of, lots of things like that. So I've done um, game design uh, in various forms for, for a good chunk of my life. I've got a nice little company of about uh, a little under a dozen people. Who, including a, uh, a number of game designers, um, uh, Liz Spain is our lead designer. Chad Brown's our lead developer. Lots of other people working at the company, and uh, just overall, uh, nice to have a, a chance to come up here. Uh, the the convention was kind enough to invite me up, and brought my wife along, and uh, uh, now we get to talk about game design. And uh, I appreciate you folks coming out. For, for this uh, little presentation. So, um, I don't really, uh, I didn't know where you guys are, so just tell me off, off the top, or how many of you are, are making games or, or, or uh, have designed some, some game elements or, or anything like that? Has anybody here done that uh, as a thing? Okay, cool. Uh, so, Great. Some, some stories I've sometimes thought of storylines or possible video games. Awesome. That counts, by the way. Okay. It definitely counts. Uh, there's only one thing that makes you a game designer, and that's if you've designed anything. That's the only thing. It doesn't matter whether you've published it. It doesn't matter whether you've, you've uh, uh, you know, uh, hit the lecture circuit or any of that stuff, whether your games are on Board Game Geek, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is that you've made something and you're happy with it, and other people maybe have had a chance to play it. So, uh, so if, uh, now there's things that we recommend as, you know, as game designers, we, we recommend people go through uh, to make their games better, but as long as you're excited about something you're making, that's all that counts. So, uh, so come on in, come join us. Um, so, uh, anybody else has dabbled at it in any way? Uh, Michael, you you made. I've been doing games for a couple. Of years. Yeah. T so, what are some of the games you've you've been working on? Um, I've worked on uh, two different games. Um, I had a party game release last year called We Need to Talk, which is about um, having interventions for your friends' ridiculous fake problems. Um, it's like a hidden information game. They don't know what their problem is. They're giving clues. Yeah. Um, and then I've, I've uh, worked on uh, some light strategy games also. Um, most recently I did a development on a game uh, that just was on Kickstarter last month ago or so called Loot of Lima, which is um, your pirates trying to find buried treasure and asking other players where they know the treasure isn't and trying to figure out where the two stuff box where no one knows the treasure isn't, that must be where the treasure is, right? Yeah, I got it. Cool, cool. Cool, cool. So, um, so you know, I mean, I, I've certainly uh, had an opportunity to work for, for most of the, uh, with, with many, many game developers. I'm a very collaborative person. Um, I've worked with most game companies, done projects for 
Disney and Marvel and Sony and and uh, Star Wars and everything and uh, Harry Potter, Simpsons, you know, all all licenses, um, and 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 there's really some fundamental things that we try to that I try to focus on to make sure that people have a a reason to pick up games that I do. Um, the first is that they should probably be fun. Um, this is not rocket science, um, but a lot of people sort of forget this thing. You know, I mean, that it's all well and good to have a perfectly functioning mechanic that that always works and a nice little engine that gets going, but nobody enjoys it. It's probably not that great a game to start with. So, so uh, finding the fun though, my job is really interesting in that. Um, I just think about the game that you like the most, right? Think about that game that you, you play the most, you really enjoy, right? Now, think about the thing that's the most fun in it. Now, remove that and spend 50 sessions trying to put it back in, right? That's basically what I do, right? I have no idea where the fun is going to be, but I have to force it into the game somehow, right? So, so part of my job is to just play something, I have a theory about what it might be, but getting it to the point where it's actually enjoyable can be a real challenge. Um, thankfully, I don't have to do that alone. And usually the reactions of other people are the kinds of things that uh, tell me whether or not we've actually had fun actually show up. So we recommend, I recommend all the time, Play testing with people who aren't your close friends so you can see whether people are really enjoying what you're making. It's really important. Um, and also just sort of getting some idea of what you're trying to accomplish and seeing if people come to the same conclusion that you do, that your game is about what you think it's about. Um, so that's the first thing I aim for. Um, the second is uh, elegance. Elegance is a... Uh, term that usually means that whatever it is you're trying to do in the game, it makes perfect sense. It's like, it's the way that naturally you would imagine it happens. So if you're playing a game and it's a combat game and you're getting this sense of very visceral entertainment, and you're, let's say you're rolling lots of dice and that leads to lots of, lots of damage and stuff like that and it feels right, that game might be elegant, right? If you're you're playing a game and there's just a central mechanic or object that, uh, like this game Planet that came out recently where you know that you're making a planet because you're literally given a planet to play with and you start adding elements to it to make it into a bigger planet um, or more uh, rich uh, climate planet, that's great. Like that feels very elegant. And so you can spend a lot of time trying to make a game elegant. Sometimes it comes out that way to start. People ask me how long it takes to make a game, how long it takes to design a game. And my answer is somewhere between one day and six years. Um, so anywhere in there, right? Um, uh, for example, uh, a game that I made called Unspeakable Words, uh, I dreamed. I um, had played Scrabble and Arkham Horror on the previous day, and I went to sleep, and I woke up with this game fully formed in my head about 
making words, but uh, the better words you made, the more sanity you lost. And, uh, and uh, gambling with the, your brain uh, to try to stay just sane enough to win the game. Like that, that game came out nearly fully formed. We played it a few times. We were pretty sure it worked, and that was the end of that. Right, I mean, like that was, and and so we made it, and it was over. Other games, like I'm sorry, what was that game? Oh, sorry, the game is called Unspeakable Words. Unspeakable right, and, and pretty much everything I bring up is going to be in the library, so I, I highly recommend that you, if you're interested in the thing, that you check it out after that. Um, but other games uh, take a little longer. Um, the game Apocrypha, which I'm going to be playing tonight, um, my colleague Ryan and I came up with the idea in like 2011 and it didn't come out till 2017 and it still didn't finish coming out until 2019 right so it was like um, it was a long long journey with a lot of development a lot of people working on it that game has um, it has a card in it called um, called contract poison contract poison is a promo card that has a blank space where a guy is sort of keeled over a, 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 a scroll. Uh, and the blank space is there. The powers, uh, this card has 33 different powers because all of them are unlocked by getting somebody who worked on the game to sign your card. And so every one of us has a different power. So there's like 30, thank you very much. It's one time I actually did something of value in the marketing department. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but really, I mean, like, it, it shows just how many people worked on it. I mean, there, was, there, were, there were something like um, uh, seven main game designers and uh, 10 different authors and say nothing of the... I'd say 60 or so artists and editors and just so many people that worked on it. And so that game, you know, uh, is a big world sprawling epic and will be around for a long time. It's, it's done very well for us. Um, but the, you know, a game like Unspeakable Words or another game I, I did recently called Sausage Party, um, that game came to me during a concert, and I was done writing it by the end of the concert, right? And so, so you, can, you can have very different experiences. But the goal is, whether it takes a day or it takes six years, at the end of it, it's completely elegant. That it's, it's uh, everything in it just makes perfect sense as to how it came together. And you, you just go, yeah, this is what this game should do. Everybody looks at it and goes, yeah, I completely understand why I'm doing the things I'm doing. Um, so a third thing that uh, is really nice to have um, is um, what I call uh, the, three, the, the, the three things. Um, when I, so if I say I'm making a game and somebody says, well, what is it, right? Like, what is it? If I can't come up with three great things about it, it's probably not that good a game. Right? I need to be able to say three things that just blow you off your chair, and then you go, oh, yeah, no, I want to play that game. Right? So if I tell you that, um, that uh, you, know, you know, I tell you that Betrayal at House on the Hill has a totally unique trader mechanic, and, it has, um, and, it, and it's like you get to explore a haunted house, and uh, 
uh, and you never know um, what what the uh, the end session is going to be, right? There's a totally different end game about betrayal. Well, those are three really good things, right? Those things are compelling. They sound like they're a really interesting game. And, and when the game had those things, then it was worth considering releasing, right? Um, so if you can't do that, if you can't come up with three things that are just great about your game, I don't know, maybe it's not really a game yet, right? Um, I guess the last thing, uh, I, I always try to make sure um, the game must be thoroughly vetted. Uh, we spend, well, I mean, our simultaneously, our games uh, are some of the best play-tested games in the world and have the longest FAQs of any games that are out there, right? So how are those things... How, how could those things both be true, right? There are people who are like, does Stellinger ever playtest his games? How could there be errors in them, right? Stuff like that. Well, there's, you know, 10,000 text fields in a game that I produce, right? Um, so if 29 of them are screwed up, I'm, I'm going to call that a good day, right? Because, because uh, you know, like, you know, I got I to gotta keep track of the, the name of the card, the power block, the 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 numbers, the the um, the artist credit, the you know, just there's so much on an individual card, and in a game like Apocrypha, there's 1,500 cards, so I got to know everything about all those things. So there's probably a few things that don't quite work the way I want them to, but there's a couple types of things that have happened there. First is, you guys don't get to see the 1,500 things we found and fixed along the way. Right, um, and the other thing about it is we don't know what they play like till they make contact with the enemy. That is, the enemy is actual players who actually bought your game, and they uh, they have high standards. They paid actual money from their own pockets. So, if they discover something that's interesting about your game that you didn't see coming, well, you got to address that. you got to be willing to own up to it. Since I don't have a real ego about this kind of thing, I'm always willing to say, yeah, I made the mistake. Here it is. Fixed it now. Um, unlike video game designers, I can't just give you a patch. I can't just have you download something. Unlike role-playing game designers, I can't just say, well, the DM's going to fix it on their own. Can't do that. Um, so I have to actually own up to my real mistakes and say, even with our massive vetting process, even with our thousands of play tests, even with our big data banks, even with uh, all the forms that we get in, we miss a few things. But you got to do the work. Otherwise, you know, your game is just going to be viewed as something that was a fly-by-night operation, and, and you really need to try to avoid that if you want to be thought of as a good game designer. Um, so I also have, you know, another thing that's going for me, which is uh, I'm very outgoing. I like being in public. Uh, I like showing off my games. Um, there, the, there, we have a rule in the office. Um, uh, it's a very simple rule, but so many game designers don't know it. And uh, if I can convey nothing else, I can convey this. Uh, it's clip your goddamn fingernails. Um, because you're spending all your time 
showing stuff off with your hands. Also gloves, fantastic decision, right? Because you're spending all your time showing off stuff with your hands. People are looking at you all day long. And I say it facetiously, but like you have to be willing to put yourself out there and show off your stuff, uh, get people excited about it. Whether it's like demos in public or um, showing off publishers your games or doing uh, videos that people can uh, watch instead of reading your rule book because they don't read your rule book anymore because people stopped reading a little while ago. It's too bad. Um, and by the way, your rule book's screwed up anyway. You want to replace it the day it came out because that's, that's how that works. Um, so, so you shoot a video and you like get people excited about it, then they know how to play your game. They don't need to look at the rule book, right? And so uh, having that sort of willingness to be out there in public uh, is a real help. It's not a requirement. There's some people who are very shy about this and they, you know, they shouldn't try to do something that's uncomfortable for them, but they should try anyway because it's really nice to get that instantaneous feedback and usually it's very uplifting when people are really excited about your game. They tell you something. They tell you about how much they like their, your game. Well, that's something you get to take home with you, right? That's pretty nice. So, uh, so yeah, those are the things I look for in a game um, or in a, in a uh, it's also the kind of thing I look for in a person if somebody's interested in working for me. Somebody asked me earlier, like, um, uh, do you have to go to, do you have to go to college to be a game designer? Do you have to, you know, go to, uh, and none of that's true. We don't look at resumes. We don't, um, uh, we don't do design tests. We don't uh, um, do, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we just don't do any of that stuff because we think it doesn't actually have anything to do with the actual process of making games. What we do we don't look at people's earlier games because we know that even if you made a game there's a reasonable chance that somebody else was the editor and somebody else was a publisher and they put their own ideas that's not going to tell me anything all i want to do is play games with people and so uh when we hire people we just do it based on how how enthusiastic and thoughtful are they how how much does their how does their brain work you know and we try to find matches that way so uh anyway that's sort of the short version of how game design works in my studio. Um, it works differently in lots of places and I've worked in lots of places. Um, so do you guys have any questions? Do you want to talk about various elements? Go ahead. Yeah. So let's say you have an idea for a game. What are the, you know, how, how do you really begin to, what are the, kind of the steps that you use to kind of begin to develop and kind of move? Right, so, so yeah, I mean the, the, the key with ideas, so I don't want to denigrate them because they're really important. Right, um, but they're not games, right? I mean, they're thoughts that if, and what I do, um, I do pitch meetings with my own staff. So basically what I do is I come in and I say, I've got this idea. I think it works like this. And I spell it out and everybody listens to me. So like, here's, a, here's an example of how that worked. Um, uh, so, also at this convention is a fellow named Keith Baker. Keith uh, and his wife Jen are here. They're from Together Studios down in um, Portland. They make uh, action cats and action pups. Uh, they make Phoenix Dawn Command. Uh, Keith is the designer of Gloom. 
He's really great, right? Um, Keith and I have been friends for a really long time. And uh, one time I needed to sort of figure out how to get the mess in my head that was Apocrypha's ideas into something that would be actionable, okay? Um, so the previous year, Keith and Jen and I had all gone on the Joko cruise together. It's a beautiful cruise down in the Caribbean of lots of uh, musicians and game designers and comedians and just really great time. Um, and Keith and Jen were gonna go on it again. But this year, I wasn't going to go because I really wanted to do uh, this game, and I, I didn't feel I had the time. So I called Keith up, and I said, hey, Keith, do you want me to take care of your dogs, dog for a week? Uh, and he said, that'd be great. He said, uh, when do you want to do that? I said, when you're gone. And, uh, and he said, okay, great. So I moved into his house, both me and my dog moved into his house where his dog and cat lived uh, and I lived in his basement for a week and I just sort of cleared everything out the the only times that week I spoke to anyone um, were uh, I went out to dinner once with our friends the double clicks uh, and I went to one game store to do a Pathfinder signing that was it so two twice during this eight-day period I talked to human beings and no other time I did and uh, and then at the end of that session, my wife came and picked me up, drove me back, and the next day, I went into the office, and I said, everybody, I just want you to listen to me for a while. Uh, and everybody said, great. And I just wrote a whole bunch of stuff on the board. I gave them handouts. Uh, I talked it through. I, I said, this is how I think this works. Um, I talked for probably like 45 minutes. And then uh, I stopped. And my lead developer, Chad, said, okay, Mike, are you done? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, here's what's wrong with all of that. And just, right? And work had begun. Like, that was it, right? Because I, I needed the break space to get it to something that we could talk about. And it, it, I didn't know if it worked. But what I knew is that if it worked, it would be awesome. Right, like I could, I could look at it alone by myself and say, if this paid off the promise that I thought it could deliver, people would love it. Um, that was good enough for the moment. It wasn't a functional game. It wasn't a, you know, it was just enough. And then real people came in and started making it a real thing, and we we did a really good job. I I thought that within two months we had it uh, turned around so it could be a on Kickstarter, and then, you know, design was underway, we had art in, you know, it was all good. But without that time of uh, going by myself and clarifying and writing things down and typing things up, it may never have been any good. So, I hope that answered your question. Well, I guess what I was really asking was, let's say you start out with, with uh, you know, concept for a game, you know, in terms of moving it forward to, you know, what elements do I have to bring in to make it you know, usable? Sure. You know, in other words, on, on more of a functional level. Right. Well, my design pitches are usually about six to eight pages long. And what they have on them is 
an example, let's say it's a card game, because that's easiest for me to describe. Um, they'll have an example of each card type and what I hope it does. They'll have um, a description of what the types of those cards, uh, what, what the variants on each of those card types are. They'll have a, a sort of core mechanic as to how those cards interact with each other. And then they'll have sort of a, a hope as to what the intellectual property that unites all of those things together uh, has in it. So, so all of that is sort of structured in a way that, um, you know, if my game has dice, I got to know how many dice and what they do. So Apocrypha had a situation where uh, I decided that there would be uh, four stats, and for some reason I decided they would all be the same length. Um, so they became body, mind, soul, and rage. And I decided, all right, those are, those are four really good names. And I decided that they would have a rating of one to four, which uh, would do two things. It would tell you how many cards of that type were in your deck and tell you how many dice you rolled when you rolled a check of that type. So you'd have, if you had a body of three, you'd have three body cards and you'd roll three body dice to get that. They were all be six-sided dice. So I had to have that. I had to have a, an ability to state a central mechanic about each of the cards and how they worked and how they interacted with each other. Um, so I could talk about like what were the targets, what you were trying to, cards would have targets on them that you needed to win versus. So if it was a monster, you needed to roll a 13 body or a 10 rage and you'd make that choice based on which dice you had and what cards you had in your hand. So, I mean, I think for me it was really very clear on that game what I had to accomplish to be at all eloquent about what the game would do. And without that, it was just formless. But once I had it, it was a game. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. cool. Other questions or topics we want to talk about? What was the biggest surprise one of your test groups came up with? Oh, all oh they're all... The, they're, oh my God. My testers, bless their hearts, come up with the dumbest things. And I, I never see it coming. Um, so in the last game, uh, uh, I told this story in the last session, um, I had a thing uh, where I gave you a calculator. Um, uh, shoot. Uh, and uh, I got to not reveal the uh, ending here. Um, I, uh, well, on this one thing, right, I needed you to... Um, to keep track of a, a set of keys, right? Um, I, I did not specify where the keys were, and I told you I gave them a calculator, so they just counted the keys on the calculator. That wasn't what I was looking for at all, right? Like, you know, is that kind of stuff is like, well, we can't have that, we have to get that out. So there's sort of like the terminological problems. But, I mean, but they find, they find the worst things. They find card combinations that I've never seen coming. They find, uh, they find uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's, uh, we don't, you know, uh, 
we don't see alternate meanings of words that, that can be really problematic. Uh, we, um, we've frequently had uh, people discover degenerate strategies of the game where the game just suddenly breaks and nobody in the office had ever seen that coming. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we, we let our playtesters, like we, we let our playtesters go at the stuff and we don't, we don't know what results we're gonna get. And I guess the, the most important thing is that people can't really have egos about this kind of stuff. You just need to get through any, any testing, you know, any results of testing that you get not as a reflection on you or how good you are as a game designer or as a human being, but uh, instead about, um, it's just about your game. And you know nobody's, nobody's gonna feel bad at the end of the day if somebody punches a hole in yours. Now, sometimes things get through playtesters and you don't see them coming at all. Um, so for example, in Betrayal at House on the Hill, um, I checked every card on that, and I checked every tile, I checked the fronts and the backs of those tiles, but somehow they didn't get checked against each other, that is the fronts and the backs didn't get checked against each other, um, and uh, that's why the underground lake is on the third floor of the mansion, because, you know, uh, nobody looked to see if it was, it said basement like it should, right? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, things are a little different when, uh, when playtesters go through them and, and, you know, sometimes things even get through those folks. Um, so yeah, that's about, that's about that. Um, okay, so what else? What other subjects are, are good? What happens when you've got a game that everybody's enjoying and you think has potential but when you break down how much it's going to cost to build, right. it's, it's too much. Yeah, but it's, when you pull out that too much, yeah. the game breaks down. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, happens all the time. Um, yeah, there's a, the phrase I think people dislike the most in my office that I say is the phrase, the rubber meets the road. Right? And they know it's always bad if I use that. Uh, that phrase, right? Because when the rubber meets the road, you have to start cutting away things that you really, really want. Um, and so, yeah, we've had we've had massive problems with things like that. Games haven't gotten made because we don't know what the central object in the center can be. We're having that problem on a game now called Hide Society, um, where we want there to be a really cool bottle that you drink from, but you're not really going to drink from it, right? It's going to give you some results. But we want it to be really cool, right? And then, you know, Dark Tower comes out, and we go, okay, well, <laughs> you know, we're, not, we're not, maybe not going to be that good, right? But we need something that, that is, uh, is strong in the center of the table, but at the same time, it could add a ton of cost. And people will say, you know, like I, I made a game called Thornwatch, um, which I'll be playing later today, which uh, retailed for $78. And it is just loaded. I mean, it is loaded with cardboard. I mean, it is the, 
it's so many tokens, so much, so much of everything, right? And there are people who are, look at it and go, well, why do I want to pay, um, you know, $78 for something that's only cardboard and dice, right? I'm like, yeah, but let me tell you how much that cardboard cost, right? And so you just have to accept it. Like, um, we, we make games all over the world because we have to find the manufacturer that can take our idea and turn it into something that is actionable um, and that's not a universal skill. It's going to be different for every game. And so that's why we jump from publisher and, and printer to, to publisher and printer. Is the uh, 3D printing and using like smartphones to a point where you can augment the game? Well, we have done some things with smartphones. Um, so, for example, Apocrypha changes every day. Um, it Apocrypha takes place on the day you play it. And every day there's a change in what happens based on what's happened in the real world. So, for example, I think yesterday's was, um, was a doomsday clock being set to 100 minutes to midnight. Um, that is something that occurred the day before. We put it in the game. Um, there's a thing in the game called the doomsday clock, uh, which is a deck of cards that that when it runs out, you lose the game generally. And uh, the, um, so we did a, a mechanic in that game that uh, we put out the next day. And that makes it a really cool game because it's like it's, it's changing with the real world every day. Um, uh, we haven't done much with 3D printing. We've done some. Uh, but the economies of scale just aren't there yet. Um, if you want to make, you know, our games, we tend to usually buy at least 10,000 copies of something, and 3D printing can't get us there yet. Yeah, so they're at home. It's not unique. Yeah. You can't tell them versus just doing it at home. Or no. Not yet. Uh, soon, maybe. Soon, maybe. Um, okay, what else? What other questions do we want to talk about or concepts? Uh, are there types of games that uh, you folks like that you uh, want to know some details about? Like, what, what do you guys like to play? Uh, do you ever work on video games? I have. Um, so uh, uh, Lone Shark decided a long time ago that we were not an electronics game company, but we have made quite a few uh, computer programs and video game stuff. Um, we just don't make it exclusively. We don't want to make, um, but like for example, um, just the first one that comes to my head, uh, Disney asked me to make um, a game with them that was an Alice in Wonderland mobile game. So I wrote all the riddles for that game. That was fun, right? Nice little simple job, but it was a lot of fun. Um, we've made um, some apps, we've made uh, some uh, and we're, we've, we've helped a lot of video game companies with uh, puzzle elements and uh, plotting elements, things like that. I also write a lot of dialogue for video games. Uh, specifically, I write a lot of dialogue for Marvel games. I'm the sort of, in a lot of... Yeah, so I do, I do, I'm the sort of canonical voice for Deadpool, for example. 
um, for a lot of games. I'm the uh, we well, the first one of the first jobs that my then intern Gabby had. Um, she was she was just coming out of college, 20 years old, and uh, she came on the company. And I said, I'm going to need you to read all these comics. And she said, Okay, I'm good with that. I have a job that makes me read comics. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I said, I need you to read all these because this character is named Squirrel Girl. And, uh, and she's a, like a 19-year-old girl who has squirrel powers. She was like, I totally dig that. Uh, and I've never been a 19-year-old girl. So you need to take my ideas for how this character talks and translate them into 19-year-old girl speak. And she nailed it, right? She, because she was very familiar with how that how people talked, right? And so, uh, so yeah. I mean, I've I've done a lot on video games. I uh, don't want to be a video game designer. I don't like the pace of the video game industry very much. I don't really like uh, the crunch of it. It's not my thing, but. Um, I don't like I don't like the economics of the industry very much, but uh, but I do like working on them. And when people let me, I do I do enjoy. We were just playing a game yesterday, a chemistry-based game where you're emulating a lab and it's a trading metric and everything. But it was just the setup took half the game session. Oh yeah. First time. And um, I don't like the online videos, but maybe that's the benefit of the online video. It's unbelievable. Well, so my games are big and complicated and take forever to set up. Um, we had a, a game. We have a game called Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, which I, I really love. And uh, we um, we had a uh, a company called Obsidian uh, made a video game version of it for the iPad, and it was great. It's fantastic. And instantly, we discovered that uh, we the game designers uh, vastly preferred to play our own game on the iPad because no setup, no teardown, no, you know. We went from like, oh, it's an hour experience to it's 15 minute experience. The game handles all the roles, you, you know, and all that stuff. So um, I think that, uh, you know, my games tend not to take a short period of time. And so the ones that require significant setup, so it's generally a good ratio, I guess, but yeah, I would love it. I would love to see the day when you can open the box and say, I would like scenario 37. <laughs> scenario 37 just plays, displays itself. I'd also like to be out of the rule book business. Um, I'd like to be out of the FAQ business, but I just don't happen to be born at that particular time. So, uh, so yeah. But setup is a huge problem. We we uh, we talk about seconds, you know. We talk about like this would save, this would save like twenty seconds, and we call that a win. You know, we 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 definitely break it down into how long does it really take to do this. So it's a pain point for developers. Oh, it's much worse for us, yeah. Because by the time the game gets out, we've gone from the forty-five minute setup version to the ten-minute version, right? But uh, but yeah, we I mean we hate it. We hate it. Have you guys considered, so I like your games, and, but I hate learning the games. Yeah, fair. And, and a lot of the time. No, that's fair. It's totally a fair. A lot of the times I end up resorting to geek and sundries, Will Wheaton's, yeah. how you play the game. I, I totally accept that. My friends 
frustration is, the first one really came out, I was like, why aren't they including a memory card right. that I can stick into something, and now that everybody has a mobile phone, right. why are we not including a link? Right, to all the videos. So I can watch a video yeah. of a game maker or someone. Well, there's the short... The short answer to that is those things aren't done by the time we ship the game to the printer, True. right? So that's a, the, there's, there's a literal fact, right? But um, absolutely, I, I completely agree. So it's a link, and then you don't have to have a rule book. Yeah, no, I know, I know. If you worked out, be on their mailing list. Every time you get the game, you sign up for your mailing list, and then they mail you QR code after. Yeah. No, absolutely. We we uh, we have now replaced the rulebook. So we replaced the rulebook for Apocrypha completely. This is to said, look, don't play with the rulebook that's in the box anymore. It's not a good rulebook, right? Because the new rulebook is just vastly better, right? It it learned from how people played the game. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I 100% like when. When Rodney Smith or Will, good friends of mine, or, or, or uh, uh, Shut Up and Sit Down has been great for me, um, I totally get it. I don't like learning my games from the rule books either. And, uh, and the fact is that, uh, you know, it's not a quality issue. I think we're good at writing them, but I totally agree. I, I, I think there's going to become a point when rule books are not really a thing anymore. Um, that instead, you know, a scenario book is something different, right? But that the basic method of learning the game is watch these people play. Now, we did that with Apocrypha. We had, so if you open the box, it literally says on the first rule book that you read, there are three rules, first rule book, that you, three, three books. First book that you read, it says, don't read this book, just go watch this video. You go watch the video and you learn how to play. Um, there were people who did not find that to be an acceptable method of learning how to play the game. And so instead, you know, uh, and so that, that process wasn't described anywhere in the book. We wanted you to just watch it so that you got it. And then you could come back and read the rule book to get all the little details. Um, so that, that process of just learning the game, and then eventually we were, people were just like, you can't do that. You have to, so, so the new rule book spells out that process line by line, um, and it's better, but yeah, I, I can't wait till we're done with this nonsense. One of the, I don't know, I wanna say, things that often comes up when you talk about rules is, like a video game, they've gone away with having rule books for video games, right? It's all done like through tutorials as you start playing it, and, user preconceptions of knowledge. Like most people are like, all right, this is a first person shooter, I already kind of have some information on how to play this game. Um, do you think that's ever going to be implemented in a, able to be implemented in the tabletop yeah. space? So it is already. Um, so uh, my game Pathfinder now has a dized application. So dized is um, a company out of Scandinavia that um, that takes games and uh, puts their play sessions online. Now, what I mean by that is this. Uh, you can learn Pathfinder simply by going through the Dized application, and it'll take you through all the processes to play the game. Um, it doesn't really substitute for the rulebook. 
there's too much going on in the Pathfinder game to try to get it all into one run through, but but it's there, and I think it's a better way to learn. Um, I just can't like it seems so obvious that having somebody teach you a game, whether it's a computer program or a person, is just vastly better than a, a book. Um, but people judge the books very harshly. And uh, so we're kind of in the middle of that. We're kind of in this unlikable phase where the rule book is still dominant, but people are learning from videos that don't reference the rule book. Like if there was a way to get it so that it was like, like what Dice does, if this became the, the norm, where not only did you watch the program or the person teach you how to play, but you also simultaneously understood where in the rule book that came from so you could refer to it later. We haven't quite made the connection yet, but I think we're close. I think we're close. What would have been nice is what this platform uh, actually does with the guided game, first-time game. Yeah, the people here teaching. Call up like a Lexus style. Yeah. And you had your help desk where you said, "Hi, thanks for you know, if this is your first time playing. You have 15 minutes free tutorial." You actually had a live person, but the videos yeah. for some of us just drive us crazy. I completely agree. Like I said, we're not in the right spot yet. We're getting there though. Yeah. I think I think this is a question that in 10 years will be solved. Do you think part of that is also the economy of scale of just, if I wanted to do videos or apps to teach or whatever, just that now you're adding more expense that the publisher has to put into producing this game? Yeah. And the scale's not there yet, probably? Yeah. Yeah, it's just a money issue. We're getting there, though. Um, it may not be in time for me. I might be one of the you know uh, people that, that they refer to. Oh, remember when we had to learn Selinker games from Selinker rulebooks? Those were those were dark days. Um, but uh, but I think the next generation is going to be in a pretty good spot. Mike, you're a veteran game designer who started publishing games when the industry was much smaller. Yeah. And so with how the industry is now, if you were talking to someone who was aspiring game designer. They've been interested in games for a while. They have some ideas. What's your advice on next steps for them to go if they want to pursue game design as either a, a side gig or maybe try to break in as a full-time designer? Yeah. Um, so my, my, my standard advice, uh, in, so this is a very, you know, um, uh, the way to look at this is that, that people are making decisions online now, just in general. They make decisions about what to do online. They don't make them, they sometimes make them in friend groups, but primarily they don't consume through magazines, newspapers, um, uh, catalogs, things like that. And fundamentally, the primary activity of how you decide whether to buy a game is what people are saying online or what people are talking about, you know? And so and that's fine. Um, so I always say, be the person known for that thing. Um, so make a thing, get it out there, and have people talk about it so that when they say, I want to make another thing that's like that thing, they know who made the thing, and they come to you to do it, right? So, uh, and I've seen people just be great at this. Um, you know, the, the um, 
Liz Spain, who's our, our lead designer, um, put out a game and she just made it. Uh, it was called Incredible Exposition, Expeditions and it's, it's really good. And I just happened to sit next to her at a um, game store event and I was like, show me this game. And she showed it to me and I was like, damn, this is really good. And you know, three weeks later she was working for my company, right? So, uh, but she'd done it, like she decided to do it. It wasn't, you know, she did a Kickstarter, great. You know, got her $60,000 necessary to make the game. Um, but that wasn't the thing that was important. The important thing is that she put it out there. She let people see it. And even if she hadn't actually produced the game, if it had only been a PDF or whatever, it still would have been something she made that I wanted to see. And uh, most of my great contacts have come from people who've been willing to take that leap and just do something in public. And uh, um, eventually, you're just that person. The, the guys who made Happy Salmon, uh, our Quentin and Ken, are just the guys who made Happy Salmon. And so if I need to go to get a, get a thing done in the family game space, I'll call them, right? Um, uh, I, it's not about success, really. It's just about having done it. Well, I'm afraid that's trying to get into the industry. I think what you just said was just do it. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, you're a game designer as soon as you make a game, right? So somebody says, oh, yeah, uh, I want to, I'm looking for somebody to work in my, company, do you know any game designers? Well, if you've made a game, you're a game designer, so you know some game designers. I was going to say, it seems like a lot of games share pretty much the same mechanics. Yes. You know, and how protective as a game designer, you know, if not. you see another game where you're like, well, that's the same thing I just did. I am not protective. Okay. Um, so I believe, so I create genres. I'm one of the rare people, I think, who gets the opportunity to drop a new concept on the world and people will publish it and uh, so the adventure card game was one of those right where I just dropped that I was like this is a Pathfinder adventure card game there were 30 adventure card games within two years after that point I never went after them I never tried to shut them down I never you know because rising tide floats all boats and I'm gonna float the most in that world right and so I was thrilled that there were lots of other ones. I, you know, do, if, if I was really protective about it, maybe that genre doesn't take off, right? Um, there's some value. So we make people sign non-disclosure agreements uh, when they come into our building to play test, when they're doing the early testing, because we don't want that stuff to get out. But when I take a game to a convention, I don't make people sign them, because if, if it's not out yet. But because by that point, it's probably on the path, and it would be impossible for anybody to get to the end of that path before I do. So yeah, I, I've never met anybody who's legitimately had a game stolen. That's just never happened that I know. Go ahead. So you're not so much worried about uh, people copying you, it's about people getting there before you. Yeah, I like being first. You want the, you want to make the genre as opposed yeah. to the credit of the 
the entire genre. Yeah. I mean, you can look at the sales of Pathfinder and Apocrypha. Apocrypha definitely didn't sell as much as Pathfinder. Pathfinder was first, right? But Apocrypha is also weirder, right? It's like it's intended to be a little more personal, a little stranger, right? So it was never going to sell as much. If I launched Apocrypha first, maybe I don't get this traction upward on that genre. Maybe I never get to do the Pathfinder game, right? Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's some value to being first. I definitely have had people tell me, um, it's weird, I've had people tell me that they've canceled games because I produced a game. I don't really get that, but they definitely have told me that, where they're like, they're like, I was working on a thing, and then you put that out, and I was like, oh, that's how you do that thing. I'm done working on this problem, right? And there's world enough in time, right? If you have a limited amount of time, you don't want to work on a thing that you think is going to end up being derivative of something that just came out. But I've never made that decision. I've never chose not to do a game simply because somebody else had made it. So it's not crucial, but I like it to be first. Okay, I think we're about out of time. So I thank everybody for coming to this. Thanks for having me at PlatypusCon. It's been my, a great first time in Alaska for me. And uh, I'll, I'll be playing my games for the rest of the con. I've got some sign-up sheets over there for um, Apocrypha and Thornwatch tonight. But I'll be around playing Lords of Vegas and Sausage Party and whatever else. So um, uh, thanks for coming. Yeah,